Hall, and welcome to the Musician Health Resource Podcast, where each week we sit down with experts from the field of performing arts medicine and together uncover the latest medical information, talk through recent studies, and provide proven ways musicians can decrease physical and mental stress and pain in their music practice to increase joy, play, sound, and artistic ability. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, learning beneficial information, or find the topics relevant to yourself and other music educators, please share. The best advertising is always a personal referral, and I ask you to consider taking a moment to subscribe, leave a review, or share the links on your social media pages. That way, this information can move up the algorithm and reach a larger audience. For show notes on what you hear today, please head to musicianhealthresource.com. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Russell. Dr. Russell holds a PhD in dance medicine and science and has a large interest in injury prevention in the performing arts. Currently, he works at Ohio University as the Director of Science and Health in Artistic Performance, or SHAPE. He's here to talk to us today about his 2019 presentation at the Performing Arts Medicine Association's Summer Symposium titled Generalized Joint Hypermobility as a Factor in Musicians Playing Related Musculoskeletal Symptoms. Welcome, Dr. Russell. Well, thank you, Karen. It's really great to be with you. I appreciate very much your invitation. Let's begin with what is a musculoskeletal symptom that anyone, not just a musician, might experience? Well, a musculoskeletal symptom is really just something that you feel in your musculoskeletal system. So the muscles working together with a skeleton, now you have the contractile tissue that's that's causing the movement and the skeleton are the levers that are doing the movement. So we just put those two words together and call it musculoskeletal. And then symptoms is just something that a person feels. Uh, I have a headache. That's a symptom. Uh, my throat hurts. I have a symptom. My ankle hurts. I have a symptom there. So musculoskeletal symptoms are just things that we feel in our musculoskeletal system that tell us something's going on and potentially we need to find out what it is. So it could be something as simple as like, I woke up in the morning and I have a cramp in my calf muscle or something. That would be basic. But now we're looking at a factor in musicians specific playing related. Yes. Um, Great. So now let's jump into what is generalized joint hypermobility or how would the general public know of it? Well, first of all, musicians, they are extremely physical and you're a musician yourself. So I don't need to tell you that. But for anybody listening that uh, is used to sitting in an audience and just watching musicians perform and say, oh, that looks just so lovely, and it sounds wonderful, and they just make it look so easy. Trust me, it is not easy. It is very difficult work. It is repetitive work, and uh, again and again and again and again, those artists are, are trying to get to have the sound be as perfect as possible, as pleasing as possible, and there's a lot of physical demand that these musicians have. And so as a result of that, this sort of playing-related musculoskeletal symptoms, we were looking at people that have told us as musicians that they've had musculoskeletal symptoms, and then we wanted to find out whether or not the generalized joint hypermobility had something to do with that. And so really all that generalized joint hypermobility means is that you have more flexibility in your joints than we typically would see in most people. 
And so generalized just means really throughout the body and you know, the joints of the body, that's uh, obviously what's connected together with the bones to, to allow movement. And hyper just means over, and mobility means movement, of course. And so hypermobility is movement over and above what we typically see. And so it's just people that have excessively flexible joints. So we wanted to find out, did those two go together? Is there something about generalized joint hypermobility that would make it more likely that someone would have playing-related pain or, or other symptoms while they were playing uh, their music. And it's, is this similar to being double-jointed? That's generally what I would think of. Well, yes, it's actually quite like that. And, and being double-jointed is a, is a very common way of, of lay people saying what we in the medical profession would say, you're hypermobile. And so being double jointed doesn't really mean that you have two joints. It just means that a joint moves more than it typically would. And it seems like you must have two joints. Gee, I must have two joints in there because after all, I get to, I, I get to move this joint so far. And so there seems like, seems like it's double jointed. So it's really not two joints. It just, it's just got so much motion that we call it double jointed. So that's a very common phrase that you might use in somebody that's hypermobile. And one thing in sort of reading about this, I first got turned on to this idea of joint hypermobility because I was having a lot of young cello students who, you know, we say all the time, like, curve your fingers, curve your fingers, curve your fingers, and they're double jointed or have hypermobility. So it was, they're not curving their fingers, which would drive a teacher insane. So in my readings, it seems like there was this kind of chicken or the egg scenario where some people were saying, oh, it's, it's an asset. And so you see some forms of hypermobility in elite levels. And some people were wondering, does it develop as a result of being in the arts for so long? Or, or what sort of, what do we know for certain? Well, it can have some of both qualities, actually, but typically what we have is uh, certain individuals tend to have a greater likelihood of hypermobility. And it's because genetically the collagen, which is the pr main protein in the body, uh, that, that protein is very extensible. It's, it's a little bit softer, if you will, than other types of collagen. So you have different, different kinds of these collagen proteins. And in myself, for example, if you saw me do some flexibility exercise, you'd say, oh, that guy, he's stiff as a board. He doesn't, he doesn't hardly move at all because that just happens to be genetically the way my collagen is. But then there are other people and they're very, very flexible and very pliable. And so that's that type of collagen that that allows you to have hypermobility. So that's one thing. So you have a genetic predisposition to this in many people. And then the other part of it is it can, through activity, become greater. So you can, you can already have a tendency toward hypermobility and then develop uh, uh, more hypermobility just because of the, the the type of physical activity you do. We see this uh, quite a bit in dancers. So there are certain things that dancers do and they do well and they're extremely flexible because they've been working on their flexibility since they were children. And so at this point, 
someone that's hypermobile, plus they've been working on their flexibility, they end up with uh, a hypermobility type of syndrome that uh, can be much more difficult to deal with when they're trying to dance at a, at an elite level. So then is it good or is it bad? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. I don't know that we really have a good answer. It, it really depends. And I know I don't like to give students uh, of mine uh, one of those answers. And here I am giving one to you. You know, that when the students ask me a question, they want an answer. All right, you're an expert. You're supposed to be able to tell us an answer. And, but quite honestly, sometimes things do depend on circumstances and Really, in this case, that's true. So it, it can be good in that it allows you to do certain things that you might not be able to do otherwise. And in, uh, again, in, in dance, uh, you might say, oh, the lines of that dancer are so beautiful. The aesthetic that they have is so beautiful. And it may be because their hypermobility, their flexibility level that they can achieve allows them to give a particular um, pattern of their body that is just really aesthetically pleasing. On the other hand, in someone who plays music, uh, it may be that if your fingers are very hypermobile, when you press the keys, your joints might collapse because the soft tissues are so flexible that it doesn't allow you to push and hold the keys in the way that you normally would. And so there might be an example of, uh, of saying that it's, quote, bad. And I don't know that bad is the right answer. That just simply means, or, or necessarily the right word for it. I just think that that means we have to do something a little bit different. We have to manage this type of person a little bit better because, quite frankly, if I told you, Karen, stop playing your cello because you're hypermobile and you might have an injury, what would you tell me? You would say, absolutely not. I'm yeah. not going to stop playing my cello. <laughs> and so, so when we deal with people like this, whether it's in dance, whether it's in music, whether it's in any other performing arts, whether it's in sports, whatever it is, whatever the circumstances are, we have to learn how to, how to handle this situation better so that we give the person the greatest likelihood of being able to participate without having an injury. Which I would think would have to start so much younger. I mean, I've been playing cello for 25 years. So to tell me like, oh, you, you'd have to stop. I'd be like, are you kidding me? I'm 25 right. years into this. So can we self-diagnose? Can we find students? Can we scout them and direct? Like what is your thoughts having done the research on, are there some instruments that work better with being hypermobile? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I think that uh, that there are perhaps instruments that it would be a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, you know, anytime, and it, any any time that you're having to push something like push keys, for example, on a clarinet or an oboe or a flute, that tends to be one that's perhaps a little more difficult, particularly if you're hypermobility, if you have a lot of it in your hands. Um, and it, it also depends too. Keep in mind where the hypermobility is. So some people have it throughout their whole body, but some people it's more accentuated in their upper extremities. Some it's more accentuated in the lower extremities. Uh, so, you know, I think part of the, part of the answer really, um, keys into what it is that you're, you're playing for an instrument. You know, if you're a drummer and you're holding drumsticks, um, that doesn't require some of the intricacy of the finger joints 
that are required. So that's a, that's a different kind of a physical demand in music than we might see uh, in in one of the woodwinds, for example. Um, and so you just have to you have to try to to work with the student if you're you know you you talk about you know dealing with young children as they're coming up. Well, Children tend to be fairly flexible anyways, but when someone's really got uh, hypermobility syndrome, then you have to just pay attention to, first of all, what their technique is. And so the, the, the teacher has to really work on absolutely perfect technique. I mean, you really want to, to make sure that the technique's right, that the posture of the student throughout the body is proper. And you want to make sure, too, that the student knows that it's okay to say when they're feeling soreness or when they're feeling pain. And I think a lot of times where we get to in the music world is people just assume that you're supposed to have pain because that after, that's, after all, what it is to be a uh, a big time musician. Well, you just have pain. It's just part of the process. It's just, that's what I am. That's what I feel. That's just not true. You know, there are many, many wonderful colleagues of mine that, that teach music. They're performers. They, you know, they are at high levels of, of the music world. And they would be the first ones to tell you, no, you're not supposed to have pain when you're playing music. And so we have to give students as they're coming up, as they're, as they're being trained initially, the idea that they should speak up when they're, when they're feeling pain, because the pain may be an indicator that they're doing too much or they're doing something the wrong way. And then the teacher and the student can work together. And actually, when a healthcare professional comes in, into, play there as well. That's an ideal situation. I call that a, the triad of care because I love working with students and their professors and myself together. Uh, we encourage that because we want to all work together so that that musician is as good as possible technically, but as healthy as possible, physically, emotionally, every other way. So it's really key that, uh, that we understand that not, we don't just push people through, uh, you know, just because that's what you do when you're in music. I love that. I have so many things to unpack from there. Uh, <laughs> The triad of care, I think, is amazing, and it makes me think a lot about my own teaching. I know we direct children towards the string instrument in the string orchestra that I'm at, but we do it based on kind of their personality, and we, we, you know, size is one thing. Like, the tiniest child is probably not going to get put onto the cello, but there hasn't been any thought to any of that other factors. Like children are more flexible, but I mean, how would you combat that in say the hand shape? Like what sort of strengthening exercises could you do to, to give someone a better opportunity in the hand? Well, strengthening is, is certainly important because the, the stronger the musculature the, ease, the easier it can control the joints, because after all, when we talked originally about the musculoskeletal system, that's what the muscles do. The muscles control what the skeleton's doing. And so the skeleton of your hands in a musician, that's controlled 
by small muscles that are in the hand, but they're also controlled by larger muscles that are in the forearm. And so <clears throat> some, you know, strengthening we use a lot in, in our clinic, uh, are, uh, different, uh, different, um, what's the right word? The different kinds of balls that have, they're, some are softer balls and some are harder balls. So they have different compressibilities, I guess would be the right way to say that. So we'll use, uh, balls that have, uh, lighter compression to start someone off. And, and often this is in a rehabilitation setting, but it can be even for someone that doesn't have an injury, just trying to do some strengthening in, in their, uh, uh, for, for better playing and for, for a healthier playing. So you start with a softer ball and you, and you, you basically squeeze the ball. Now that helps for your gripping, but then you also have to remember that your fingers extend out and, and, go back to the the original position again and so they make balls that have elastic um, portions on them that you put your fingers through so you squeeze the ball to get the muscles strong in one direction and then as you extend your fingers these elastic loops stretch and so when you're spreading your hand back out they give you um, muscle training as well and so you go back and forth and back and forth and uh, those are those are really uh, good uh, kinds of equipment for developing the musculature of of the hands, and I think it's really critically important that that strengthening be part of it. I mean, you could do something as simple as squeezing racquetballs or squeezing tennis balls. I mean, racquetballs are softer than tennis balls, and so that I think the point is that you start with something that's easier to squeeze, and then go to something that's that's harder to squeeze as you get stronger. But these are the kinds of activities that uh, help the m- the muscles of the hand and and the forearm, that uh, the muscles outside in the forearm that that operate the hand. So, you know, those, that's just an example. There's multiple different kinds of of exercises that can be done. Uh, I think another thing that's important is that there be a proper warm up, and so something like a ball and working the hand, maybe um, just um, you know, back and forth, even without any resistance, you can just go back and forth and, and get the hands moving, get the wrists moving. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get blood flow into the muscles. And so as you start working, you start warming up the muscles, start getting the, the tissues warm. You don't want to go in and start a music lesson, just cold. You don't just walk in off the street, open up your case, pull out your instrument and start playing. That's not a good idea. You want to make sure that you're warmed up. And that's another thing that can help, not just for people that are hypermobile, but anybody just to make sure that, that you have the, the, the proper warm up as you go into it. Stretching as a warm up is not really a warm up. What I'm talking about is dynamically starting to move the muscles without a lot of resistance just to start moving them to get blood flow through the muscles and that starts warming up the tissues. And if we didn't have strong, you know, hands, uh, I'm talking specifically kind of wrist down, what problems can we expect to look forward to? Well, you know, if you, if you have someone that plays, a sousaphone, for example, compared to, compared to playing a flute, uh, 
then obviously there's a big weight differential. And so just the fundamental aspect of getting an instrument into position becomes difficult. But then some instruments also require different kinds of manual dexterity. Uh, for example, your own, your own instrument, the cello, you know, so in your, in your left hand, you're working on the fretboard, you're working on the strings, you're, you're having to be very nimble, if you will. You're having to have lots of very fine motor movements and the quality of your playing really depends on whether you can get a particular finger onto a particular spot on a particular string for the particular amount of time to actually get the sound to come out in the pitch that you want. Now your right hand, your bow hand, that hand, what you're, what you're doing is it, it's, it's holding your bow and it's going back and forth. And so now you're not using so much of your fine motor movements in your hand, but you're using more of your entire upper extremity there. And so all the way back up into your core musculature and where your, where your muscles hold your shoulder onto your, onto your trunk, all that becomes important. Uh, and so it really, it, kind of depends the answer to your question on what the instrument is and what the different activities are within the instrument and sometimes one hand does something different uh than the other one do you see what i mean and this again comes into play not just if you're if you're uh hypermobile but if you're hypermobile the strength becomes even more important because without good strength again you're not able to control what's going on in the joints. So the joints can move in ways that the typical joints wouldn't move. And so therefore you have to do extra work to be strong to control those joints better. So do we see a generalized joint hypermobility having like a stronger link to problems down the line, like arthritis or, or issues, or how does it function in the aging musician? Well, First of all, the interesting thing that we found in our research is that hypermobile people, people that said to us that they were having plane-related injuries, and we found by testing them that they tended to be hypermobile, they didn't really have more injuries than people who weren't hypermobile. So you go, well, wait a second, why are we even having this podcast? And what's the, what's the point of all this? <laughs> you know? And so that's an interesting finding. Hypermobility, we know, is an issue to be dealt with. We know that it can create a lot of problems because the joints are moving potentially differently and more than non-hypermobile joints. The problem that we have is that the research is inconclusive because some people say hypermobility is a problem. Some people say hypermobility is helpful. And some people say hypermobility doesn't make any difference. And so that's what you see in the research literature, which was one of the reasons that I put together this study. Now, all is not lost just because we don't find a relationship. Because actually, what I think is the most Important thing, I was, first of all, very surprised that we didn't have uh, a correlation uh, or a relationship between uh, the hypermobility and the plane-related pain. But what I did find is that 70% of the musicians that we studied said that they were having plane-related musculoskeletal symptoms or, or injuries. So what does that tell you? Musicians have a lot of injuries. 
Yeah. That's really where I think we need to be spending our time. And as you've already seen, as we've discussed this today, that a lot of the, uh, a, lo- a lot of the things that I say about hypermobile people, I would equally say about musicians, you, or about any musician, you have to be able to, to warm up properly. You know, you, you're going to have injuries. If you have 70% of people in music that have, and that have some sort of playing related pains, you know, symptom of some sort, an injury, perhaps those, that, that, that's too many. We need to lower that number. Cause that means that seven out of every 10 are deaths. So if you take all, you know, take 10 students in, in, in your teaching that you do, seven of them are going to have at some point in their career, they're going to have a problem. They're going to have some kind of an, an injury or, or playing related pain. So we need to do a better job of knocking that number down. And I think that's really, and hopefully what one of the benefits is of our conversation today is getting people to be more aware of this and you know, really, if they're musicians, if they're teachers of musicians, if they're parents of musicians saying, hey, we've got too many injuries in musicians. We need to do something about it. Strengthening is one part of that. Rest is one part of that. Nutrition is one part of that. Proper hydration, taking in enough fluid, that's a part of it. So you see, now all of a sudden, this becomes more of a principle of musician wellness than it does oh if you're hypermobile you got to do this you see what i mean so maybe i've made a maybe maybe i've blown open a whole nother can of worms for you but it's a can of worms that needs to be opened i must say yeah i think the statistics hang pretty regularly between like 70 and 80 percent of people who report pain in just about every study i've ever seen um the largest one of course is now starting to get outdated when uh dr ackerman did that big one down in australia and that was sort of my first experience being like what is happening like why are we doing this yeah i know and and bronwyn bronwyn uh, dr ackerman um bronwyn ackerman is is a good friend of mine and she is extremely good extremely good researcher and so when you read her work you pay attention because because uh she tells it like it is and and she is is one that really has uh recognized heavily in the music field that we've got to do something different than the same old thing that we've always been doing. I wanted to touch really quickly before we uh, wrap things up on your study, the way in which you tested people. Is this something people can do to test themselves or was this very special? Well, actually, it's uh, pretty straightforward. And, you know, overall, if people wanted to do something called the Baton score, then they certainly could do that. that. That's the name of the, uh, that's the name of the process. And it really in, involves a nine point scale. And, you know, it would, it, it would be very easy if you look, if you looked at the pictures of what you're supposed to do. And it basically it's looking for joints that move farther than they ordinarily would. So for example, you would move your little finger back back um away from your palm or it's toward the back of your hand you bend it backward and if you can go to 90 degrees between your little finger and your hand then that's one of the indicators that potentially you have a hypermobility so we would give you a point for your right hand and we give you a point for your left hand then we 
do uh, a couple for the wrist. We do one point right, one point left. Then we do one for the elbows. And if your elbows go downward, you know, and you know how your elbow is supposed to bend. Well, if you put it out straight and it goes past straight, more than 10 degrees, we give you one point for the right, one point for the left, depending on what you've got. And the same thing with your knees, you know, you put, you, you lock your knees back straight. And if your knees go back farther than they typically would, if they go back at least 10 degrees more, then we would say one for the right, one for the left. So it's a total of eight. And then we would have you bend over at your waist and keep your knees straight and see if you could touch both palms on the ground. And if you could do that, then we would give you a ninth point. Uh, so however many of those you can do, that's where you get your score. So I told you already that I'm very unflexible. And so my score is a zero for the bait and score. And, uh, you know, other people that are super duper hypermobile, then they may have a nine or an eight or a seven. And so typically we say if you have four or more, you have a tendency toward being hypermobile. So that's what we did in our study. We just used that because that's been reported in the literature as a, uh, as a way of, you know, measuring someone, just a quick screening tool. Doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't cost anything. It's just a quick screening tool that we can use. So someone could do that on themselves and get a pretty good idea of, of whether they have hypermobility as we think about it in clinical healthcare. Um, but that's how we did it in our study. And then we, uh, we used a couple of different scales. We used something called a quick dash, which is a quick form of the disabilities of arm, shoulder, and hand. That's where dash comes from. So it's called quick dash. It's just a fairly short survey that just asks some questions and you get points for the different questions. And depending on how many points you have, that determines how much, how, you know, how much of disability score you have, how, you know, how many problems do you have in your arm, shoulder, and your hand. And then there's an extra piece of that that has some questions specifically related to sports and performing arts. So those are the the things that we use to get our scores and helped us do our research. But I mean, those are things that you don't have to have a, a medical degree or you don't have to be a, a licensed athletic trainer like I am or a physical therapist or anybody else. You can just, if you found those, you know, you easily to find on the internet and you could screen yourself and just to kind of get an idea of where you're at. Yeah, I was doing some of them actually. As I, I know I'm a bit hypermobile in my elbows and my knees, uh, and I can touch the floor, but I hadn't really ever thought, I guess, about my elbow in conjunction to my playing. Yeah, and I, I'm very involved. Yeah, well, and and I think there, I think it's important for people to understand that if we suggest that you're hypermobile, we're not saying that there's something wrong with you. Right. This is not some horrible disease and, you know, you know, oh no, and my career's over. It's not that at all. We're not, and we're not saying there's anything wrong. We're just saying you're different than what's typical. And, you know, that just, I mean, everybody's different, right? I mean, we all have genetic compositions that are, that are different. I mean, it's just, just the way it is, uh, you know, and this is just one of those characteristics uh, that, that makes, Jeff, Jeff, and makes Karen, Karen, and makes everybody else who they are, right? It just happens to be what, that what your makeup is, whether you're hypermobile or not. So that's important to remember. And then the other, the other thing that I feel is important is that just because 
you are hypermobile doesn't mean that you can't do something or that you shouldn't do something. It just simply means that we have to pay attention to how you're doing things, and we have to make sure that we use um, all of the tools that we have to help you be the best musician that you can possibly be because there are lots and lots of really awesome musicians who have hypermobility and you know it, that's not the only factor that determines whether you're a good musician or not and so i think it, you know if you remember those couple of of caveats then then people feel a little bit better i think that that they can manage this better and it puts them in a right frame of mind to move forward instead of being dejected and oh no now i'm not going to be able to play you know that's just not true and you know couple that with just being really common you know commonsensical about hey let's take care of this this pain let's find out what's going on let's you know don't try to play through pain because pain is a signal your body has to tell you something and you need to listen to it and find out what it's all about so playing through pain is a terrible terrible idea for a musician or for really any other type of performing artist that has has some sort of pain that's affecting what they do in their art form they need to be seen by a qualified healthcare professional so that they're able to be taken care of in the best way yeah and of course we'll have uh links on the blog to everything that you've said today and ways that people can find you at the shape clinic if they happen to be located in Ohio, as well as, uh, you know, PAMA, Music Cares. There's, there's a surprising amount of resources out there. Um, do you have any kind of small or practical pieces of advice you can give to musicians who might still not understand all these anatomical or scientific terms that would help them better perform or educate their students on this topic? I think I would say the same thing that I've been saying in my class so far this semester. So I have mostly artists in my class that's called Health and Injury and Performing Arts. And the thing that I tell the students, and then I'll say here to your audience, is science and the health sciences, that's not some spooky dark side thing going on. That's something that's very approachable and um, should not scare people that are in the arts at all. And and I just want to encourage people to go out and find good information. You do have to be a little bit careful about where you get the information from, uh, because obviously, you know, in this day and age, you know, really the only thing that's required to be an expert is to have a web page, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you know how that goes. And I mean, so, that's what I have. <laughs> well, I mean, but there's good ones and there's bad ones, right? And so if just because you have a web page, just because you can find it, if just because just you can find it through Dr. Google doesn't mean that it's necessarily the, the right thing. So you want to make sure you're getting reputable information. But, you know, it, this is all accessible to people. And I encourage them to get out and learn because it doesn't just drop out of the sky into your lap. You have to go out and you have to expend some energy and learn. But once you learn, you're better informed. Then you're better able to be a musician or to be a music teacher, uh, to, you know, be a, a performer, to do it for fun, you know, whatever, whatever place that your audience members are in, there's, there's 
clearly uh, an opportunity for them to be as good as they possibly can, no matter what they're trying to do. And, and that's really the right attitude is let me learn as much as I can possibly learn so that I can be as good at what I'm doing as I possibly can be. Great. Really good advice. Well, uh, unless you have any parting thoughts, that, that wraps up our conversation. So thanks for being on the show. Karen, it's been a great time with you. I really appreciate the invitation and uh, so glad for what you're doing and for the message that you're sending out to people. And so just keep up the great work. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about what you heard here, check out the website, musicianhealthresource.com where you can find links mentioned here to locate our guests, as well as helpful blogs, our online store, and other information. And of course, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review if you haven't already. This helps boost the appearance of this podcast and searches in the algorithm, allowing a greater audience to be reached with this information. Thanks for listening to Musician Health Resource, and we'll see you next time.